Welcome to an in-focus edition of On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I've been increasingly curious about student success across higher education, how it has changed, and what institutions are doing to engage and retain a new generation of learner. I'd like to thank the folks at NAC for bringing this conversation together. I encourage you to go to joinnac.com where you can capitalize on your NACs and make the most of your skills by helping your peers. Now, on to the episode. So, you know that if you've been listening to the podcast, I have been sort of walking down the higher ed path, um, both virtually and uh, in real time with different interviews and conversations that I've had here locally in Nashville at universities um, and for those that are around the country and and for that matter, uh, across the globe when it comes to higher education. Uh, I've been introduced to George Koo. He has been in higher ed for, uh, well, I'll be be very respectful, George. You said the number of years, but... (laughs) You you have a history in higher ed. So we you were at IU, Indiana University, University of Illinois. Um, you, you've got a fantastic background in higher education. And there's some things that I'd love to walk through and just sort of get your perspective on, as it does feel like we're in an inflection point. And I'll give you an example, real-time example. So earlier today, I moderated an event here locally in Nashville for high school students where they were VCs on the panel, so venture capitalists. And what was so fascinating was students were asking questions from the audience. You know what they kept asking, George? Do I need to go to college? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I know the audience yeah. can't see your, your reaction. But there was this, and it kept going, and they used this technology. Well, the audience great. see te- tears, tears flowing down <laughs> my face about that. Um, but it's, you know, yeah. it's understanding the value uh, proposition that college and the experience both socially and academically uh, have on their future prospects, right? And, and sort of plugging into our our national economy in whatever way they feel um, driven to do. But here's the part that I think is fascinating with your background is to understand student engagement. And you had talked a little bit off air. I'd love for you to sort of help me and the audience know a little bit about the national survey of student engagement that that you kicked up. Was that in 2000 or the early 2000s? It started, uh, yeah, the first national administration was in 2000. We we were playing around with the idea for a couple of years prior. The Pew Charitable Trusts based in Philadelphia was the primary uh, grantee. Uh, and what was the, was what was the challenge that, at that time, George? Like, why was that question coming up that you had to explore student engagement? Have you heard about U.S. News and World Report rankings? I, I mean, you know, I today, have. of course, yesterday and today, it's about Harvard and Yale Law School saying we're not going to do the rankings anymore. And by the way, uh, we also founded a law school survey of student engagement. But I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit. The the Nessie, as we called it, the National Survey of Student Engagement, was created to give institutions information about the student experience that they didn't have. The law school, uh, I'm sorry, college rankings, law school rankings, they're all about what institutions have, resources, number of faculty, faculty with terminal degrees. Uh, it, it used to be, you know, in, in the uh, U.S. News and World Rankings, they, they used to give points for numbers of volumes in the library. (laughs) So it's almost like buying a house where you're looking to see all the amenities that a house may have. It's all about what it has. That's right. Not about, and so you can have a, you can, you know, if you have a, you know, a a built-in swimming pool, you know, but you never use it, what's the value add? 
you're talking about value propositions. So the NESI was created to give institutions information about what students did or what they do with an institution's resources. So uh, great, you've got a number of Nobel laureates on your faculty. How many students actually get in a course, an undergraduate course, what by that faculty member? <laughs> we didn't ask that specific question. Sure. But the point I'm driving at here is: so how many uh, how many papers do you actually write as an undergraduate? I'm not going to ask you that at how many papers you wrote as an undergrad at the University of Illinois. But I would I would have students in my introductory master's level course when I taught that, and I'd raise that question. And there were some who never wrote paper after their first year rhetoric course. All their exams were multiple choice. So we would ask questions like that. How often, uh, how, how, what, what kinds of interactions do you have with faculty? What kinds of interactions do you have with other students? How often do you interact with students who are different from you in terms of race, ethnicity, socio-political views, and so forth and so on? And then some of the questions were behavioral. You know, have you studied abroad? Uh, have you done uh, had a community engagement experience? Uh, have you ever done research with a faculty member? I, I, you don't need to hear about the entire survey, but the point sure. is the things that students do that we knew from previous research mattered to their learning. Those are the kinds of questions we were asking. And so when institutions get the data and they find that students taking uh, uh, their introductory math courses are not having to put forth much effort, this was true of one of the best performing schools we had in our data set, faculty would look at that and say, maybe we ought to take a look at that math, that introductory math class, because it's not creating the kind of academic challenge we should be expecting of our students. So, so what Nessie gave schools was a window into the student experience that institutions could actually do something about. And uh, I'm no longer involved with Nessie, but it's it's moving toward its 24th year, and it has been self-supporting since the initial Pew uh, investment. Still going, it's one of the few kind of foundation-funded initiatives that actually took root and is self-sustaining. George, talk a little bit about once universities, colleges and universities got that data, at what point was there, did the light switch go on about retention and the impact that data would have on keeping students throughout the life cycle of sort of, you know, starting on campus and graduating? It, uh, it I mean, the retention challenge uh, was there long before Nessie came around. So Nessie wasn't designed, developed uh, specifically to address what I like to call persistence and <laughs> completion. <laughs> Retention, you know, is mindful of swollen ankles to me, but I haven't, I've, I've been leaning into that windmill, you know, for 35 years and no one's, no one's changed their point of view or their lexicon in that regard. But um, what, what, what students need uh, in terms of um, what continuing to motivate them to finish what they start is to find relevance and meaning in their time on campus. Now, Nessie was not the, uh, the, I don't think the primary kind of insightful tool there, but when you combine the student satisfaction, we, we only had a couple of questions about that, with their, I'll call, quote, engagement scores, the time and effort they expended in the things that we know matter. And if those things were out of kilter, uh, it wouldn't be, unusual for a student to say, I'm not getting what I want out of this 
And we know so much more now about pedagogy and how to uh, involve students in their own learning in classes, labs, the studios. Well, the labs and the studios, that's typically not the problem. The typical problem is those large undergraduate early courses, the gen ed courses, you might have 150, 300, sometimes a thousand students, right, in an introductory to psychology lecture. Well, how do you animate? How do you involve students in those? There are ways to do it. You know, there are outstanding examples. So we know a lot more about how to do this work. Nessie was helpful in that regard. Uh, we sometimes seem to to lack the will. So institutions have, uh, wait, did you say, did you say Michigan State? I did, yes. I'm a Spartan. Okay, well, I'm not going to, my, my, my example is from the University of Michigan. That oh, that's what, <laughs> I'm pro Big Ten. <laughs> but, 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 you know, years ago, they decided that they would, if a, if a first-year student wanted a small seminar, 25, 22, 25 students, they could opt in and the university would guaranteed that they would in their first year have a small seminar with with faculty and what the small seminar does is that means that every student in that small seminar gets to know at least one faculty member that first year really pretty well and equally important they get to know a set of students peers 20 uh, they get to know a group of students really well, students that they probably would not otherwise have come into contact with. Now, wh why are peers important? Because on a university campus, peers are the single most important group in terms of deciding how another student is going to behave. I mean, it's crazy. We talk a lot about, and rightfully, about the importance of faculty-student interaction. That's terrific. But, you know, the 18-year-old is still looking for what? Peer approval. Do I fit in here? Do I belong? And there's a steady stream of research now about belonging, how important that is to retention. And if I don't find other people here who are like me, and oftentimes we're just sick. In fact, when I, they used to roll me out at Indiana University when I was on the faculty. I did some administrative work. I'd go to a parent meeting, and the most you know parents would say, "Well, what should my son or my student be doing?" As they got to right, they got to find the right friends, because it's that affinity group that has a huge influence on how on how students perform. So I think I may have taken a uh, a side road here from your question, but there's a lot that we know now that we should be doing better. This conversation has been supported by our friends at NAC. Go to joinnac.com to capitalize on your NACs. Now, back to the show. Where, so, no, you, I think it's, you laid that out beautifully, I think, in just sort of the evolution of this, these things that were revealed over time, some common sense, some right in front of us, front of us. Um, and some that incorporate in the community, right? The parent or the caregiver, the support system, and helping to understand the value of these social relationships, that sense of belonging. At what point did student support services sort of merge with the academic side of it? Because you really make a key point around that peer, right? The, the, endorsement, the engagement of the peer, and we're seeing that that can assist in the learning journey as well. When did we start to transition and understand that support services, because when I went to school, they were sort of isolated. Yeah. It was like you either had to go like, these are the suite of services that, that the support <laughs> office might have. This is what I need to do for academics. But it seems like as you're talking, we have sort of brought the, we've crossed these streams and, and for the better to understand that 
if we're going to provide support, it is encompassing of academics, social, emotional sort of belonging and connectedness. For a long time, I mean, there's a there's a wide literature right now out there about how the affective domain, how emotions influence one's thinking and vice versa. Uh, we finally, after, I don't know, 800 years or something, <laughs> this has we been a long the time coming. I'm not <laughs> saying we, we turned the corner on this just a few years ago, but more and more people now are readily accepting, you know, the notion that uh, feelings affect thinking and, and vice versa. And this has happened uh, all too slowly in the uh, academy, as we call it, right? Uh, we wrote papers, I wrote papers, uh, it's got to be 25 years ago now, about creating seamless learning environments. That how do you take the out-of-classroom experience and do what one can do to make it more congenial to the institution's educational mission and vice versa. Um, so uh, some of the things we talked about offline earlier about these high impact practices, many of them take place inside the classroom, which is the great laboratory for learning. So uh, you, you do the math, the students, and I'm talking now about the so-called traditional age student, but the same thing can be said about the new majority, older students. You're spending 70% at least of your waking hours where? You're not in class, right? And the you know the new majority student, the older student, well, they're working there with family. They got all sorts of things going on, and they may be doing their learning online, you know, asynchronously and so forth. But even at the Michigan State undergraduate experience, right? You're you're outside the classroom, and this goes back. I don't want to, you know, weigh in more on the on the peer effect, but you're spending a lot of time outside. How do you capture that discretionary time and use it for? I'll call it educationally purposeful <laughs> activities. And, and so faculty members, uh, you know, the, the community of service learning, the community engagement experience where a faculty member teaches a course, but a lot of what goes on in what's valuable about that course takes place outside the classroom beyond the typical class hour, right? Students are off campus working in a community agency. They're doing research with a faculty member that that could be classroom based, but the work gets done not during the class hour. And as we talked about, you know, the study abroad experience, the uh, other kind the internship, these are things that uh, should be part uh, of uh, an an undergraduate experience and increase and these are not new things, right? I mean, you they, know, they were right there in front of us. It's just we didn't put it was like ingredients for a meal we never thought to fuse together. Yes, yes. And if you were you were like me, you know, I first in my family to go to college, there was never any discussion around my dinner table, right? About studying away or doing an internship or or doing research with a faculty member and so forth and so on. Um but you know, students who've come from college educated families were were and continued to be more likely to find their way into these kinds of activities. So there's a huge discrepancy, uh, disparity, as we've called it, between who gets into these kinds of things and, and, and related activities and who doesn't. Sometimes money is a factor, but it's typically not money. It's typically not thinking. You talked about the value add early. It's typically not thinking about these as being particularly valuable. And when you ask employer employers what they're looking for in college graduates, they want to see someone 
who stuck with the project for a long time and demonstrated that they can finish it. Well, the kinds of things we're talking briefly about here are exactly that kind of evidence. And, and one of those areas that I think has been right there in front of us, but we have not uncovered, and we are in the process of uncovering, is understanding the value of peer-to-peer -peer when it comes to the learning process. So whether it was COVID or just sort of a natural evolution of education that is both sort of brick and mortar, hybrid, remote, is understanding that peers can play a very valuable role in acquiring knowledge and competencies for students that are on campus. And I use campus very broadly, right? Because it could be in any uh, number of domains. Uh, I know that you are, are now a senior advisor with a group called NAC, a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, tutoring. Talk a little bit about the value of that kind of connection. Because when, you know, we've been talking about like my alma mater and where you worked, but, you know, Michigan State was so big that I still remember my student ID because that's what identified me. Not my relationships, not my courses, but, you know, almost like a prison number, which sounds very dramatic. But uh, but when you when you are a part of something so big, you do look for those things that connect you and ultimately connect you to whatever your career path may or may not be. And I think the peer-to-peer -peer tutoring not only is incredibly timely uh, in where we are, but I think it also, it serves multiple purposes. It's the engagement. It's connecting with a peer that is of similar age or of disposition and sort of area of expertise and interest. And by doing so is probably going to help in the persistence, not retention. <laughs> uh, see, I'm learning, George, uh, of keeping sort of me on campus. Well, as we've said about peers being influential, um, but peers are also more approachable. And so you mentioned uh, typically more approachable. That, that's not a slam on, on faculty and professional staff people, not, not at all. Uh, so uh, what we found, what NAC has found, and I, as I said, I'm, I'm kind of on the fringe of NAC. I don't work with NAC every day. Um, but what NAC has found through its and this is important, technology-enhanced peer-to-peer uh, advising is that they can, uh, they can actually employ more peer tutors than an institution can because of the way they're staffed. So uh, just a couple of things about this and then try to get to the heart of your question. Uh, most peer tutoring, I'm sorry, most tutoring operations on campus, whether it's done with professional people, full-time staff, or whether it's done through peers, they have someone sitting in an office on the clock being paid, whether there's a student there or not. Right? The meter well, is running. <laughs> NAC, yes, that's right. Next idea, not mine, Next idea uh, was, look, we, we want tutoring, students want tutoring on demand. Uh, and so we can create a system, a, a, a product, a, a platform. You know, obviously, I'm not the techie here. <laughs> we can create a platform <laughs> that can bring trained tutors. This is part of what they do working with national associations. They have a very rigorous training and peer-tutor peer -tutor development program that they operate with. We can bring people together uh, on, in a timely fashion when students want it. Um, and, and, and most students, I shouldn't say most, but many students aren't, can't afford sometimes. I mean, but because if they work and they've got other commitments, they can't afford to get there before 5 p.m. or 7 p.m. And so when you look at the variation in time when students 
use tutoring, you know, it's all over the map. You know, I, I don't know of a single institution that has a tutoring office open at 2 a.m. Now, not a lot of students. There aren't oh, a lot the, of the George Coos School of Business does, right? <laughs> <laughs> there, aren't, there aren't a lot of students who, who, who <laughs> want to tutor at 2 a.m., but there are some, you know. Yeah. Um, and so why, why peers? Well, uh, some, many students are more likely to open up to a peer than they are to say to a faculty advisor or, or to a staff member, I don't have a clue as to what I'm doing here. Hmm? It's safer. I, 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 and again, I'm not trying to suggest that that's the nature of all these kinds of conversations. No, but, but I think that, but the, you, but you do touch on something and sorry to interrupt, but you, you know, it's look, that's the general experience in the West of education and that's okay. It's just that whether we're in fourth grade or 10th grade or we're a freshman in college, that is that experience that the teacher has knowledge that we don't have and there's a power differential. And so if you've changed that equation and you and I are peers, I'm naturally probably going to feel a little bit more comfortable in sharing my frailty around some subject matter that I need to learn. Well, and as we mentioned a little bit ago, you know, uh, the, the interaction between the, the cognitive and the affective dimensions of one's life. Uh, so this becomes kind of a social experience as much as it is an intellectual experience. Uh, if, if students want to move right in that direction, but once one is socially comfortable, one t it's a lot easier perhaps to not just admit one's frailties, but to go in directions that perhaps we wouldn't have chosen or wouldn't have been what uh, amenable to going. So uh, but we got to keep in mind, this is not just someone going online saying, I want a tutor in my chem class and smacking them together. You know, on the on the peer tutor side, there's a fair amount of time invested in, in becoming good at the tutoring experience, right? And not just any or everybody gets in. Institutions have a hand in determining what the basic criteria are for eligibility. Uh, but it's kind of funny. It's kind of like while Nessie, we call Nessie institutional research in a box. You send us your student's name. We'll send them the instrument and then we'll send you the data and we'll and we'll even help you analyze it. That's kind of the way NAC works. It's kind of peer tutoring in a box that, that doesn't do it justice. And the fact that they are technology enhanced, they can scale on a campus where. So here's the thing. Um, I'm, now I'm combining Nessie and NAC data for you. <laughs> we know we know from Nessie from the beginning college student survey. That's that, that's the piece that students take just as they're about to start college. Almost two thirds of them will say at the beginning, "Yes, I'm going to need some form of academic assistance. I'm underprepared in these areas." And then when you ask them at the end of the first year, how many of them actually went to the reading and writing or tutoring center? less than 20%. Huge despair. And, and we also know from national testing data that almost half of students aren't ready to do college-level math. These are students who are going on to college, right? High school graduates going, they're not ready to do college-level math. So there's a huge disparity here. And, and when you go, when we can, you can mark back to that early question about why do students leave school? Some as I mentioned, they don't find relevance and meaning, but many are frustrated. And so we've learned a lot about developmental education in the last 15 years. And that is when you stick a student in, let's just call it what it is, a remedial math class for which they're not getting credit toward graduation. 
the frustration mounts. And especially when they find out after three weeks, all they needed was a math refresher that could have put them in the regular math class or the regular writing class. So there are a lot of things that we do, have done, we're getting better at this, is kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. So um, one of the things that impressed me uh, about NAC when I first, well, I had a series of conversations with the NAC folks, Samir Qureshi, who's the CEO, founder of NAC. <laughs> I, I still I still don't know what NAC has to do really with peer tutoring, but that's the name. That's the name. Sorry, Samir. That's the name they chose. <laughs> Um, he he convinced me, he persuaded me that he wanted to demonstrate that their approach, technology enhanced approach to peer tutoring could qualify in my language as a high impact practice. One of these things that students do that has unusually positive effects, that if a student does one or more of these during the undergraduate experience, they're more likely to finish what they start, they're more satisfied, their grades are better. Um, uh, yeah, and, and the outcomes, overall outcomes are better. And so um, that's essentially what kind of why I signed up and and have been the, quote, <laughs> senior advisor, <laughs> helping out when I can and helping them design data collection activities that are going, we hope, will demonstrate that uh, this kind of approach to tutoring has a demonstrably, unusually positive effect. And not to pivot to a negative uh, topic, I guess, in higher education, but the economics of higher education have been at war for years to figure out how do we keep this train on the tracks. And if we're thinking about it, and you mentioned it, it, it's also about the business models in the solutions that are out there to support higher ed. You know, we were talking about the meter is running in the sort of the traditional way in which tutoring yeah. was was uh, pushed out there to students. And to me, it's it's more of a, it's about sustainability, right? That's, of course, people are talking about sustainability everywhere. But to me, it's about, the, it's not just about the engagement. It's about sort of the peer, you know, interaction through technology. But it's also supporting the economic models of higher ed, which, you know, if you have off the record conversations with people in leadership in higher ed, there are a lot of people biting their nails. <laughs> you know, that's not breaking news, but it's about trying to find ways, models, methods, to keep yeah. students, uh, keep the student body where it is um, from a numbers game, uh, give them high level services and academics so that that can then transition to the next crop of students. Well, the I mean, it's the single greatest challenge that uh, post-secondary education faces. It's, it's the cost issue. And I mean, there aren't, there aren't many great solutions out there. One, which we've known uh, uh, for a long, long time, it costs much less to recruit a new student than it does to keep one. Say that one more time, and, if you will. because that, that... Uh, Sure, it costs much more to recruit a new student than it does to keep one. So what I mean by that is the amount of money that students spend on glossy brochures, what, do they still do glossy? No, I mean, whatever the web-based stuff is that they use. Let me today. check my mailbox, I am, George. <laughs> I, I am a senior advisor, so there was my senior moment. But uh, the, the, the number of staff people that are on board working in enrollment services and so forth. So we need them, certainly. And, and now I'm talking, I'm not talking about the elite, you know, private institutions. I'm talking about the state colleges that are everywhere, the community colleges and so forth and so on. You got a lot of people and uh, they're needed 
Um, but the amount of money that goes into bringing a student into the enterprise um, is is much less than if we could figure to, to, to support an institution, if we could figure out to keep more students, paying the tuition dollars, getting state subsidies for those students and so forth and so on. Um, so that is one main reason, really. It's probably the main driver why institutions in the last 25 years have started to worry about their, quote, retention numbers. There are others including the regional accrediting associations, which are responsible for determining whether an institution is of uh, is delivering a high high enough quality product. Uh, they really have been leaning into these kinds of issues too. That is, um, if you're under way underperforming in terms of what you ought to be producing with regard to numbers of graduates. I'm getting a little deep in the weeds here, but there there are these predictive models that says if this, this is what your incoming students look like, then you ought to be graduating n number, n percent of them relative to other institutions that are that are like you. So, um, but back to the technology piece, um, I'm, I'm not a technophobe, but I'm not an early adopter either. <laughs> so when I sit out there and I look at things like NAC, or when I look at uh, technology um, platforms like, I'll just pick one that I've learned more about recently, Mainstay. Yeah, there's a lot of buzz out there in the world about uh, uh, Georgia State University in Atlanta and how they have used technology and what we're calling today nudges. Uh, that is, these, these artificial intelligence bots that will ping a student and remind a student simple things, but sometimes more complex, simple things like, by the way, don't forget your financial aid FAFSA form is due in two weeks. Uh, by the way, don't forget early registration is in. By the way, you need to check with your advisor about X, Y, and Z. I, I would hope, by the way, when are you going to do a high impact? <laughs> I hope that gets into the mix here soon. But these things have come a long, long way. Um, and 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 they're they're now what modifiable so that uh, they can fit into only almost any institution's student information system. So you've got multiple uh, you, you've got multiple inroads to a student. Um, what's the name of this? Uh, um, th there's also a uh, now I can't believe I'm blocking on the name of this outfit that I helped with early on, but it 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 connects parents with their students. In, in in real time, we discovered with Nessa years ago that students are in today's undergraduate traditional age student again. The, the the person they're most likely to be in contact with on a daily basis is a member of their family. I mean, that's not to say they aren't texting, <laughs> hanging out with friends a lot, but, but there's much more interaction between families and students today. Well, this is uh, technology driven interaction that is consistent with what institutions are trying to do educationally. So, so NAC has demonstrated with this technology, not only can they get more peer tutors to work and more students to seek tutoring, students that remember that wide disparity I mentioned earlier, yeah. well, we're getting more students to seek tutoring. And here's the big kicker. A lot of those students are students from underrepresented, historically underrepresented backgrounds, right? They're low income, 
They're less well prepared for college. They come from uh, an ethnic minority in the context of that institution. These are students who have not heretofore sought out these resources. So the peer effect in this regard is uh, is huge. Significant. Let's close with this. So I know that people are listening to us. They don't. They can't see us. But the passion that you have for education, George, is. Um, it, it's right in front of me. I mean, you're sort of pushing the bounds of the Zoom here, the, the the pixelated experience that you and I are having. And that speaks to your commitment to education. Uh, so a bit of a big question, but uh, I, I get the sense that you can absolutely handle this. And, and, and with grace would be, what is education meant to your life? Because you very easily with your background could say, I'm just in sort of enjoying this stage of my life and not be as passionate because you've already checked the box. And I don't get the sense that that's, in your DNA at all, you sound as passionate now as you might have been 20 years ago. 20 years ago. Yeah, I like to think I maybe even know a little more <laughs> 20 years ago. I'm sometimes <laughs> embarrassed when I think about those early years in the classroom. Well, you know, you started with a, you started with a question that I didn't answer. Uh, I think this was on the podcast or maybe just before we started. Uh, what's the value add? Um, and, 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 and students were, you were at a meeting where, where students said, why should I bother to go to college? And th that is such a depressing statement to me um, because I don't think students and, and, and many parents, I, I don't think they know, they don't really fully appreciate what it is their student is going to be missing. Now, we... we <laughs> I wrote a little piece for the Harvard Business Review, I don't know, a couple of years ago about this. Um, it, it's funny that the that many of the politicians, and I mean that in the best sense of that word, who are pushing for short-term credentials as our way out of this uh, uh, economic crisis. If you ask them where they're, what their kids are doing, you know what their kids are doing? They're going to college. Why? Because college is the best bet we have. And, 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 and the, the numbers are still there in terms of economic return, right? I mean, the, 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 the person with the baccalaureate degree, and it doesn't make any difference what they're majoring. This is another problem we have, with the, the, that we've lost the narrative. Yeah, you got a lot of people who are working as baristas. Well, we've always had college-educated people who have chosen to do something other. We ought to follow the number of engineer engineering majors who actually end up in engineering. You know what? It's not nearly 100%. You know, the engineering, the engineering field loses a lot of people who ought to be in their pipeline because they choose to do something else. So I worry, uh, particularly with regard to the state of our democracy, that's a small d. Where are students going to learn how to actually read stuff that is authentic and true as opposed to being uh, seduced by something that is, is flat out made up? I mean, that's a huge problem we have in the world today. It's not just, not just the U.S. And, and, and it's not necessarily that you know, the, the, the typical college-educated person is going to see all through that. But the the fewer resources we put into helping people think critically about themselves and the world around them, the few, fewer resources we put into teaching people how to interact effectively with people around them in the workplace, in social 
uh, you know, systems and so forth and so on. The fewer the resources we people we teach people how to think analytically to actually read what's in front of them, whether it's you know in pixels or in in uh, the written word on a piece of paper. The fewer resources we put people uh, to give people to to help them continue to learn how to learn over the course of their lifetime. And I don't see a lot of that in short-term credentials. Somehow it's supposed to come through osmosis, right? I really, I, I worry about that. And I know there are a lot of compelling factors, including cost. You know, when people do the math and they say, hey, I can, uh, I, I remember this back from the, from the 80s. A lot of students in Las Vegas would leave high school or quit high school to park cars because they could earn $28 an hour parking cars. But 10 years later, you know how much they were earning parking cars? $28 an hour. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm afraid that, that we do need more plumbers. You know, we do need more electricians. And we need more truck drivers. But we also need a lot more people who uh, are going to be able to uh, do the kind of thinking and interact effectively. Not that those folks can't, they certainly can. Well, it is very clear that education is a part of your DNA. It's not something that you work in or for, but it is a part of the fabric of who you are and higher education and education writ large is better for you and your participation. So hopefully you continue to participate because you bring not only a legacy, but I think some very progressive, thoughtful conversation about the topics that are going to drive this industry and support the young person as they decide whether or not they want to pursue college and or if they're going to be persistent in their approach when they are on campus. We want to thank NAC for helping to support this conversation. You can go to joinnac.com. We want to thank George Koo. Uh, George, you are feel like a fast friend. You are such a thoughtful individual, and I'm so glad that we were able to capture some of your experience and your perspective today. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.